Our scripture reading for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. That can be found on page 809 in the Bible under your seat. So it's Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him alone shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I'm Dan. I serve as lead pastor here at Trinity. Thank you for coming out on a very cold morning. There was a moment this morning where I thought, I could stay right here (laughs) in bed. Yes, absolutely. And of course, I couldn't, but you probably could have. So thank you for coming. And I mean that seriously. I know I'm teasing, but I'm really serious about that. Well, for the past 18 years, Capital One has been relentlessly asking us, what's in your wallet? What's in your wallet? Implying, of course, that there could be something wrong about your wallet. You could have the wrong credit card in your wallet. You may be paying too high of interest rate or too high of fees or missing out on airline miles or cash back or whatever. You know, it's actually not a bad question. And the fact that they keep asking it means that it's working as an advertisement strategy, right? But I think maybe a financial planner in our midst would say that asking questions regularly about your financial health is a good thing. Well, there's a similar question that undergirds our text this morning. It's not specifically asked in the passage at all, but it's there. It surrounds it, and the question is this. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? And it's one of the most significant questions that anyone could ever seek to answer. A question that we should be regularly asking ourselves. A question that fits with the idea of repentance that we talked about last week from chapter 3 in Matthew. And we'll try and make some connections here as we move along. But the question, what's in your heart, is found in Matthew 4, 1 through 11 by considering what we've already seen in Matthew chapters 1 through 3. A couple of weeks ago in Mike's sermon from Matthew chapter 2, we learned that the way Matthew uses Old Testament prophecy, how he connects them to Jesus, is meant to show us that Jesus is the new or the true or the faithful Israel. 
He has come to do what Israel failed to do. Mike said that Jesus is standing in for Israel. And he's come to do what they they didn't accomplish, which was to bless the whole world. Going all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, to God's covenant with Abraham, we see that all the world was to be blessed through his descendants, through Israel, that they were to mediate God's presence on the earth. They were to be a kingdom of priests, but they failed. But it's not just when Matthew quotes the Old Testament passages that he establishes Jesus as the new or the true Israel, but it's the way Matthew tells the story. As he's writing and reflecting on Jesus' life, he's retelling Israel's well-known story by putting Jesus right in as the main character. So in chapter 1, the genealogy of Jesus, among other things, is essentially a retelling of the entire history, the key moments of Israel's history, and points to how Jesus will fulfill all the promises that God made to Israel. All of Israel's history reaches its climax in Jesus Christ. But it's also interesting to note that the book of Matthew begins by saying quite literally in the Greek, the book of the Genesis of Jesus. And so while Jesus repeats Israel's history, this is a new beginning, a starting over of the story in order to bring about a different outcome. And then from the Genesis of Jesus in chapter 1, we come to chapter 2, where we do find connections to King David and to Bethlehem But we also have an exodus, and we have Egypt, and we have Moses. And just like Pharaoh feared the Israelites were growing too strong in Egypt's midst, and so he had all the young boys killed, Herod fears the news of a new king, doesn't he? And he has all the young boys under two killed in Bethlehem. And just like Moses was saved from death because his mother hid him in a basket floating down the Nile, Jesus is saved because his parents, warned by an angel, hide him in Egypt. And then out of Egypt, God calls his son. And moving into chapter 3, we find John. John the Baptist is the fulfillment of an Elijah-type prophet who would Come and prepare the way for the Messiah. And we see that preparation comes through a baptism of repentance in water. Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 speaks of the Red Sea as a type of baptism for ancient Israel. And here, having been called out of Egypt in chapter 2, Jesus now passes through the waters of baptism figuratively, passes through the Red Sea. And so we get to chapter 4, and what would we expect if we were following this storyline? He would go into the wilderness, and that's what we have. The Spirit of God leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And in his test, all the Scripture Jesus quotes in response to Satan and the temptations that he lays before him come from Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 8. 
a section of that book where Moses reminds the children of Israel as they're preparing to enter the promised land, he reminds them of God's purpose for the 40 years they spent wandering around the wilderness, a purpose which is clearly explained in Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. What's in your heart? All testing has as its goal in the life of the believer the revelation of our heart in order to lead us to change. God tests us to reveal our heart in order to change us. The wilderness was a test. It was a proving ground of future faithfulness, a preparation for greater tests to come. It pointed for Israel to what would be needed for them to flourish in the promised land. They were supposed to learn to trust God's word, to believe that it was true, every bit of it. They were supposed to choose obedience to that word over physical provisions. They were supposed to learn not to put God to the test. They were supposed to not act as if God existed to serve them and to do what they wanted, but that they existed to obey him and bring him glory. And most of all, they were supposed to learn to make God the exclusive object of their worship, and they failed. They failed in the wilderness, and it, because of that, we anticipate that they're going to fail in the promised land. And, well, before they even enter into the promised land, if we read towards the end of Deuteronomy chapter 31, God says this to Moses, you're going to rest with your ancestors, and these people will soon prostitute themselves to foreign gods of the land that they are entering. They will forsake me and break the covenant I made with them. R.T. France, in his excellent commentary on Matthew, writes, Now, here in Matthew 4, another son is in the wilderness, this time for 40 days rather than 40 years, as a preparation for entering into his divine calling. There in the wilderness, he too faces the same tests. There in the wilderness, and he has learned the lessons which Israel has so imperfectly grasped. His father is testing him in the school of privation, and his triumphant rebuttal of the devil's suggestions will ensure that this new son of God will not fail, and the new exodus will succeed. Where Israel of old stumbled and fell, Christ the new Israel stood firm. Now the goal of these tests, and we're not going to get into each one real deeply here this morning. The goal of each test seems to have one target, Jesus' complete faithfulness to the will of his Father. 
Satan, in some way or another, is trying to get Jesus to use his miraculous powers to avoid the sacrificial nature of his mission. And this test prepares him for the greater tests that are to come. The closer Jesus gets to the cross, the more intense the testing becomes. We see it in Matthew 16. Jesus tells his disciples, look, I'm going to have to suffer many things at the hands of the leaders of the Jewish people, and then I'm going to be killed. And Peter pulls him aside and says, no, it's not going to go down like that. That's not the way it's going to happen. And what does Jesus do? He rebukes him, very specifically saying, Satan, get behind me. In Matthew 26, in Gethsemane, we find Jesus expressing in prayer to God the Father, asking him if there can be any other way that redemption can be accomplished, any other way that he can bring salvation to humanity. And yet as he prays, we see him yielding to the will of the Father. And then just a few moments later, as he's being arrested, he tells his disciples that he could call 12 legions of angels if he wanted to. But of course, he doesn't call 12 legions of angels. And as he hangs on the cross, as his mission is about to be accomplished, the crowds taunt him. And they say, if, if you saved others, why can't you save yourself? And we all know he could save himself, right? He could go, and it would be over. But he doesn't. And he stays on the cross and he dies. Unlike anyone would have ever imagined, the great king of the universe is crowned on that cross. He completes his mission. Now, there are so many ways we could approach this, so many ways we could seek to apply each one. We could talk about when you're tempted, you need to quote scripture at the devil, and we could do a lot of things like that, and that would probably be a good idea. I just want to kind of step back and do a bigger picture thing here. And I want to start out by saying the test is real. And here's where I want to go. I want to ask first, did it really happen? Did Jesus, was he tempted by Satan in the wilderness? And I'm going to answer that with a big, big yes. Even though we've just said that Matthew orchestrates all of this and tells the story so it kind of fits into this retelling of Israel's story, Genesis, Exodus, wilderness. I believe the temptation happened. I believe it happened just as Matthew tells it. It's a historical, actual event. But going further, was the temptation real? In other words, was it possible for Jesus to fail? Was he really tempted or was it just some kind of exercise for show? In some ways, this feels like asking if a tree falls in the forest and no one hears it, does it make a noise? You know, that kind of a thing. It's one of those head scratchers. And the way it's always been explained to me is to say, as the eternal Son of God, Jesus could not be tempted with evil. But as a man, he could feel the temptation, the desire. By taking on flesh, he could experience Real temptation? 
Yet as the writer of Hebrews says, he was tempted truly, just as we are, and yet he was without sin. So it was real, but failure was never an option. But beyond that, we might ask, is the devil real? Is there really a devil? Something to think about. Is there an unseen spiritual world made up of demons and angels? And again, we answer, yes. The Bible tells us that there are untold numbers of spiritual beings that are as real as you're real. Maybe more real, I don't know. I've never seen one. But they exist. And there are bad ones and there are good ones. And the bad ones, the evil ones, the ones who have aligned themselves with the devil are the enemies of God, his Christ, and the church. Paul speaks of standing against the schemes of the devil in Ephesians chapter 6. And with that, we must add that there is a real war going on between good and evil. It's real. It's not fake. It's an actual real battle. The breaking in of God's kingdom into this world is creating conflict. It's creating war. There is, in a sense, an armed resistance against the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And even though we know how the story ends, even though we know in the end God's kingdom will be established and the goodness of creation will be restored and evil will be defeated, the battle is real. And all this brings us to probably the most important thing I'll say this morning. And it's simply this, while it's not possible for Jesus to fail the test in Matthew 4, from my perspective, it is possible for me and you to fail the test. It's possible that some people who claim to be Christians and call Jesus Lord will not make it into the kingdom. And if, if you think, what? Just read the Gospel of Matthew where in chapter 25, Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord. And I will say to them, I don't know who you are. So clearly, there are people who won't pass the test. Now, I haven't played video games for years. As a matter of fact, the last video game I was deeply invested in wasn't even a video game, really. It was a computer game. It was called The Red Baron. It was the early 90s. And I would fly this biplane around, and I would shoot down people. Hopefully, the Red Baron would show up, and I would get a chance to shoot him down. It was kind of a, a virtual reality for me. I could fight I could do dogfights, but you know what? If I lost, if I made them, went up too high and those planes were no good at all, you know, they weren't like World War II planes. If I went up like that, all of a sudden it just, and it's like you're dead, the screen would start shaking and it'd go black. And you know what? No skin off my back. I'd just fire it up. Okay, let's try that again. It wasn't real. You know what I'm saying? It was just play. And I think sometimes we approach the Christian life like that. Like a video game. If I fail, well, I failed. No problem. If I lose the mission, if I don't stop the bombers and all the factories blow up, they're not real factories. It doesn't matter. I can just start over. 
The tests that you're facing every day in this battle for the kingdom of God, it's not that video game kind of battle. It's real. It's a real battle. It's not fantasy. We're not playing Christianity. We're in it. We are in it. Sin is real. Your decisions, they're real decisions. Your actions, they actually matter. They make a difference. There are real consequences. 1 Peter 5.8, we read this. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your enemy, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. I don't think this prowls around like a roaring lion means he's not a roaring lion, don't worry about him. I've heard preachers say that. He's, he's toothless. I don't think that's Peter's thought here. He's saying, be alert, be on guard. He's got teeth, real teeth. Be careful. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he went to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray, and he told his disciples, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So I just want you to remember this. What's going on in your life is real. It's not a game. It's not a video game. It's not like, oh, I blew it today. I can start tomorrow. I can... No, it's real. Life is meaningful. Your decisions are meaningful and they are significant. And these tests that come our way and our response to them reveal what's in our hearts. So the tests are real and the tests reveal. And part of the challenge is saying that God tests us to reveal our hearts is that the plain, and that's the plain teaching of Scripture, is the fact that he tells us to watch and pray that we wouldn't be tested, right? I mean, it's like, how does this work? He's going to test us. We should pray that we shouldn't be tested. Or actually that we shouldn't be tempted. Theologians do try and make a distinction between being tested and being tempted because God can't tempt anyone, but he seems to lead them into testing. And you know what? I can grasp that on paper. Oh, this is, this is a test and the devil's doing the tempting, but when I'm in it, it just feels like all one big thing. You know what I mean? It's like, whatever it is, it's happening. I can't tell a test from a temptation. But God tells us the purpose of these things. He wants to reveal our hearts in order, I believe, not to condemn us, but to lead us into repentance meaning to bring about a change of mind that leads to greater godliness and greater goodness in our lives. And the various kinds of temptations we face, moment-by-moment moment temptations and the bigger life-changing ones, they may look different from what Jesus is encountering here in Matthew chapter 4. They may not look exactly the same 
But it seems that all temptation has the same goal, at least from the, the, the evil side of that goal, and that is to knock us off of course, to turn us away from the ways of the kingdom. And when I look at what was going on in, in Jesus' life here, it seems that Satan is trying to get Jesus to grab the kingdom without the suffering, without the struggle, without following the will of the Father in which the kingdom of God would come through death. Satan is saying, why don't you bypass that and just go straight to the kingdom, straight to being king, straight to being ruler? Let me just say something. I think that when we face temptations, that's exactly what Satan in all his various ways, and that's what our flesh in all the ways it responds to life around us is trying to knock us off course. And this highlights one of the things that I'm going to struggle with as we move through Matthew. And you know how I do this. When I struggle, I just assume you're going to struggle too. It's the way I think. We're going to struggle when we get into this Gospel of Matthew with the high cost of discipleship. It's really high. And I won't go into it here, but I think understanding the high cost of discipleship as Jesus lays it out and the relative cheapness of grace as we often think of it, I just think we're going to have to change our mind on some things. I think we're going to need to repent. And this series may be for many. The actual series may be for us a test. And so I want to be asking myself each week as we move through this, whether I'm preaching or Mike's preaching or Everett or JP, what's in my heart? What's in my heart? What's in your heart? Will I believe what God has said through Matthew's gospel? Will I embrace the good news of the kingdom as good news? Will I seek God's grace? Will I pursue growth and change through repentance? Or will I reject the things I don't like? Or will I try and seek to explain them away? I think we all need to be thoroughly convinced that when God calls us into his kingdom, real joy, real comfort, real community, real goodness, real wholeness and fullness are really there. That's where you will feel the most human, the most complete. And then I think we have to understand that the path to that goes through suffering and sacrifice. It worked that way for Jesus. That's how Satan is trying to derail him in chapter 4. It works that way for all of us. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be a part of the kingdom, 
let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. If you get a chance to grab Dietrich Bonhoeffer's The Cost of Discipleship, it's a great read. I love it. And there's a quote in that book where he says, The cross is laid on every Christian. The first Christ's suffering which every man must experience is the call to abandon the attachments of this world. It is that dying of the old man which is the result of his encounter with Christ. As we embark upon discipleship, we surrender ourselves to Christ in union with his death. We give over our lives to death. Thus it begins... The cross is not the terrible end to an otherwise God-fearing and happy life, but it meets us at the beginning of our communion with Christ. And then he says, which is a famous quote from him, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. What's in your heart? What's in your heart? So the tests are real. They're not fake. It's not just an exercise. The tests reveal, and as we move through Matthew, a lot's going to be revealed. And yet, what we see here in Matthew 4 and the way Jesus handles this as the new kind of Head of Israel, the new king, the new representative, the true and faithful one. We know that his victory in this temptation assures that the church will be victorious. We will pass the test. There will be a different outcome for the church than there was for ancient Israel. I'm hopeful of that for both me and for you. I think the main point here is that Jesus, the new and faithful Israel, in passing the wilderness test, points to our ultimate and final victory through him. He's the first of many brothers and sisters. History records two important dates toward the end of World War II. And Jerry, you'll appreciate this and know a lot about it. D-Day and V-E Day. D-Day took place on June 6, 1944, when the Allied forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, France. This was the turning point in the war. Once this landing was successfully completed, Hitler's fate was sealed. It was over. Yet total victory in Europe did not occur until some 11 months later, May 7, 1945, when German forces surrendered in Berlin. This 11-month period is remembered as one of the fiercest periods, bloodiest periods of the whole war. Pitch battles were fought throughout France, Belgium, and Germany. And although the enemy had been mortally wounded, he did not immediately succumb. 
We might say that the cross of Jesus was our D-Day. I was thinking about this. We could almost think of it as the arrival of Jesus being the D-Day, because the minute he comes on the scene, it spells the end of Satan's rule and reign, right? Satan knew the battle was lost at that moment, it seems. Yet the final victory awaits Christ's return, doesn't it? There's no doubt as to the outcome of things. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he declared, we know how this story is going to end. I have won the decisive battle over Satan, death, hell, sin. And yet we still find ourselves in skirmishes. We're still in battles. We're still fighting the good fight of faith until Jesus appears in glory to vanquish the forces of darkness forever. It's beautiful. What's in, what's in your heart this morning? What are, how are you responding to this? If you were to ask yourself, I don't know, will I pass the test? I had moments when I was thinking through this, especially yesterday, where I thought, A, I don't want to preach this. B, because I don't know if I can pass the test. You know, I mean? I'm feeling it inside. It's, it's agonizing. And then I'm reminded of what Jesus came to accomplish. If, I, if in saying the test is real, you're thinking I'm, I'm saying that somehow you've got to fight your way to the end in order to earn your salvation. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's real. But then I think of Ezekiel, where the prophet, looking forward to what Christ would accomplish, says, God will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. From all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. God is changing us. He has already reached in and pulled out our stony hearts, and he's transforming our hearts into hearts that beat for him. And so we need to be asking, what's in my heart that is not in line with the kingdom of God? What's in my heart that is trying to avoid the path of discipleship, trying to avoid the cost of discipleship? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he has won the battle, that he has paid the ultimate price for our salvation, that he has secured for us a new heart. And yet, Lord, I, I acknowledge that sometimes our hearts don't beat for you. Sometimes there's parts of our heart that feel cold, that still feel hard. 
Father, would you move on this congregation in the power of your Holy Spirit to soften our hearts, to, to bend our wills, to draw us closer to yourself? Would you give us a hunger and a thirst for righteousness? Lord, be at work in our midst. Lord, help us to fight the good fight of faith. Help us to check our hearts, to, to analyze our lives, and to turn to you in repentance and faith. Amen. Amen.